Well, thank you, worship team and Elder Bob and Huey for <clears throat> guiding us through our <coughs> service. It is indeed an exciting time for us at Cornerstone. <clears throat> We've had a real great summer of ministry and, and also a lot of ministry to come. Um, for about a year now, we have been praying with Faith Bible Church and Slavic Gospel Association about doing um, a joint Bible Institute in Kazakhstan. They have wanted us to teach a two-week slot about a year ago, and <clears throat> a lot of logistics uh, didn't fit, so it was delayed. But now, uh, with this summer, the plans have been finalized, and <clears throat> the first pastoral team went out this past few weeks ago to their first session teaching 20 pastors, 20, 25 pastors and church leaders in Kazakhstan in their former capital, Almaty, Kazakhstan. We've been invited to go, and so in November 9th, um, uh, Mike Castora and I will leave to teach church planning in the book of Acts, and then Mike will stay for one week, and then they're going to rotate tag team with our elder Bob. Bob's going to come out, and Bob and I will teach church planning to the pastors there, and we'll return November 22nd. Strategically, a very a pivotal place to be training pastors. It's a, a Muslim country. It's one of those stand countries, right? Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kazakhstan. <laughs> so we're definitely going uh, behind enemy lines. Um, my heart, I know Bob and Mike agree, our hearts are excited. We're tremendously um, blessed and considered a privilege for us to go and to minister to these men. So we ask you guys, all of you at Cornerstone, to be praying for us. <clears throat> Mike and I are feverishly studying the book of Acts so that we rightly teach them the Word of God. And Bob and I are really studying church planning, qualification for elders, deacons, philosophy of ministry, church membership, church discipline, all those things that we might teach them there. It's a unique challenge teaching in Kazakhstan because there's two languages that are spoken, um, the Kazakh language and, the, and Russian. So there'll be dual translations going on at the same time. So we will teach in English, and they will translate to Kazakh and Russian. If a Kazakh student has a question, he'll ask in Kazakh, and the interpreter will translate to Russian, and then Russian will translate it to English, and then it'll go that step back to answer the question. So it's going to be a unique challenge for us this um, coming November, but we look, I think it's a great opportunity for Cornerstone as well to really stretch out and, and uh, minister halfway around, it's literally halfway around the world. If you look at the globe, exactly opposite side of Orange County, California, it's right there. So uh, be in prayer for us. Secondly, uh, just a quick plug for our second hour teaching today, Seven Deadly Sins of the Seeker-Sensitive Church, or Churches, Seeker-Sensitive Movement. I, I believe I'll get some phone calls afterwards. <laughs> I'm going to get some emails. Uh, I wrestled greatly whether to call them sins or not, but as I do a word study of sin, the basic meaning is missing the mark. That, that's what it means, Romans 3.23. <clears throat> and I humbly believe that in these seven areas, the church growth movement have missed the mark. What God had intended for His church, they have missed the mark. So it is rightly called sin. So 
encourage all of you to <clears throat> really, really come with open hearts. And we'll be studying that topic for weeks to come. <clears throat> well, let's get to our study for this morning. And I really uh, can empathize with Bob and being a little bit older. As I was at the uh, bonfire party this past Wednesday with the Milestone folks, just dear believers, but I found out a few of them were born in the early 80s, 80, 81, and uh, my goodness, you know, I started like my junior high in 81. I was like 13 years old, old then, and uh, definitely felt uh, older as, as well. So, my beginning illustration, if you are not yet a teenager in 1984, you're not gonna, you might not understand this, but if you're generally in my age group, you understand what I'm talking about. In 1984, culturally, for most Westerners, was a very significant year, was it not? You guys remember 1984, a lot of blank stares out in the congregation. I look at the older group here, maybe they'll, they'll understand. Um, George Orwell, in 1949, wrote a book titled 1984. It was a grim and dark vision of the future, where... Uh, information was suppressed. Big Brother, a totalitarian regime, controlled all information. Books were banned. And this Big Brother controlled even individual opinions and thoughts and ideas. They had cameras, cameras everywhere. And they would <clears throat> punish anyone who deviated from their official beliefs. Well, when 1984 came... Thoughtful Americans were relieved to know that this dark prophecy did not come true. In fact, Macintosh computer had a, just a memorable ad of a, a big brother disseminating information and these mindless folks lined up in a, in a movie-like, theater-like atmosphere and this woman comes and she throws a hammer and breaks the a screen and the out pops a Macintosh computer, Freedom. You guys remember that? Okay, some of you guys remember that, that shows, so shows our age. Well, anyway, Neil Postman, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he begins his book by saying this, quote, We must remember that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another slightly older, slightly less known, equally chilling book, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warned that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression, but in Huxley's vision, no big brother was required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As Huxley saw it, People will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. Orwell feared that some people would ban books, while Huxley feared that there will be no reason to ban a book, for there will be no one who wants to read a book. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Egoism is the 
um, excessive preoccupation with one's own life, accompanied by an inflated sense of self-importance. There's so much information bombarding you that you have the wrong perception that you are the center of the world. That's what Huxley feared. Orwell feared that truth would be kept from us, concealed from us. Huxley feared that truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with distractions and shallow trivialities. He feared that as men, we had failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite, infinite appetite for distractions. Well, Neil Postman's book, his conclusion is that Orwell was wrong, that Huxley, that Huxley was right. Well, I read an article a few days ago on Yahoo.com that confirmed to me again that both Huxley and Neil Postman was right. <clears throat> you know, my homepage is Yahoo.com. I have an email account there, so I log on. And on the right-hand side, there are top leading news stories of the day. <clears throat> Two days ago, <clears throat> the top news item was a big earthquake hits Japan. <clears throat> Number two, CIA probe in the White House. Number three, President Bush and Putin call Iran and North Korea to end their nuclear program. And then, Ben Affleck, J-Lo, buy pickup truck together in Georgia. <laughs> I thought it was a joke. What? Like J-Lo and Ben buy a pickup truck in Georgia? And that is a top, the fifth leading story of news. I click on the link and it's an actual news report that they bought a truck together. They didn't even say it was a Ford or a Nissan or Toyota, but they bought a truck together. Well, Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with distractions and shallow trivialities, and I believe we're in this world. <clears throat> We're in that kind of world. We're bombarded with information. Sensory overload. And we misunderstand what maturity is. We understand what wisdom is. We see wisdom and maturity as someone who knows a lot of things. They know a lot of facts, a lot of st statistics, a lot of information. Well... I mention this because this mindset has infiltrated the church. This mindset of constantly craving to learn new things, learn mo more things, accumulate knowledge, being busy with trivialities, with distractions, being in the thick of thin things, to a point where in Western Christianity, Someone is seen as godly or mature if they know a lot about the Bible. If they know a lot about theology and know a lot of verses, that equates Christian maturity. And it is precisely this mindset that can lead a person astray. It is precisely this mindset that can lead a believer away from the foundational truths of Scripture. <clears throat> whether it's Sunday mornings or weekly Bible studies, it is this mindset that causes a believer to hear a teaching and say, you know what, I know this. I've heard this before. 
I've studied this. I've read this. I want to learn something new. Something innovative. Something exciting. It is intellectual snobbery. It is godliness by how, by how much you know. And Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, scathingly rebukes such thinking. Listen to what Piper says concerning this. <clears throat> Quote, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in this world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. That is the difference. The people that make a durable difference in this world are not the people who have mastered many things. But they are the ones who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the world and roll on into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks. You don't need riches or come from a wealthy family or a fine school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious truths and be set on fire by them, end quote. What he's saying is not how much you know, but it's how much of you is captive to the few great truths of the Word of God. And as I consider godly men who are examples to me, as I consider my pastors, my mentors, models who are ahead of, my, ahead of me in the Christian race, men who challenge me by their character, their godliness and faithfulness, what I see is that they know and they live and they die for the basic truths of the Bible. Their hearts are set on fire by simple truths, basic truths. But to them, it is powerful. People have asked me, James, why did you invite Dr. Pettigrew to be on your ordination council? Why did you ask him to speak on Ordination Sunday? Well, it is precisely this reason. Do we realize that he is the senior professor of theology at the Master's Seminary? In areas of scripture and theology, his knowledge begins where mine ends. Right? He has answers to questions that I haven't even thought of yet. Right? I don't have the questions yet, but he already has the answers to them. But you can tell by his life, and especially preaching, that what drives him is not these lofty, esoteric, inquisitive, nuanceical things of scripture. What drives his heart, his, his, his life, is the basic Christian truths. In his Sunday sermon that morning, he came to us and what did he preach? He said, his one point, God is interested in our holiness, not our happiness. Man, who doesn't know that, right? Like, that's, that's like Christianity 101. His point to us, trials rightly met will bring endurance but wrongly met will bring temptation. 
Point three, God brings trouble into our lives to mature us, not to move us. Simple truths. And we all know, know these truths. But the issue is, are our hearts set on fire by them? Are we living according to these simple truths? And you can tell, when he has the opportunity to preach the word, what is in it? what's in his heart? What's, what's storing his heart? What, what sets his heart aflame? It's few basic truths of the Word of God. Well, that is where we're at this morning. Right? Today's study and next week's study deals with simple truths. Most likely, it's not new for anyone here. I don't know, maybe you might say it's not exciting. It's not innovative. James, it's not, it's not new for me. But again, that's not where it's at. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effects of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you have to know a few truths. The few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious truths and be set on fire by them. The next two weeks we will study six simple truths, glorious truths. And if any person is set on fire by them, their, their lives will have a lasting impact that reaches eternity. I, I truly believe that. I mean, you can tell by the passage, we will look at verses 22 through 30 for the next two weeks. And they're the, they're the Bible verses that are in red. They're the words of Christ. And I think after we're done next week, you'll agree. These are powerful truths that I've known most of my Christian life, it is high time for me to commit to them, to base my life, to live and die for these truths. Well, let's go to the text in John chapter 10. If you remember two weeks ago, we ended at verse 21. In verse 22, you want to note that three months have passed. In verse 21, it was, it was October of the year. In verse 22, it is now December. John tells us that it is now the Feast of Dedication. Before it was a Feast of Tabernacles, now it's the Feast of Dedication. Feast of Dedication is also known as Festival of Lights, popularly known as Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not a biblical feast. It is not commanded in the Scriptures. It is an extra-canonical, extra-biblical feast based upon the history of Israel. It commemorates a key historical event in the history of the nation of Israel. It is much like July 4th for America, United States, like Cinco de Mayo for Mexico. Hanukkah it commemorates a key historical event in Israel's history. In 168 B.C., a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes, he conquered Jerusalem. And for three years, he humiliated and slaughtered the people of Israel. He commanded that all Jews apostatize, deny God, reject the Hebrew Bible, and be converted to Greek gods. Any Jew who would not do that on the spot was murdered. 
prayers, observing the Sabbath, circumcision were forbidden on penalty of death. If they saw you going to, to the synagogue or the temple to worship on Sabbath, they would murder you on the spot. Many died rather than apostatize. Some Jews yielded to this pressure. Every available copy of the Hebrew Bible was destroyed. Some of the Old Testament scriptures were hidden by the Maccabees in the caves of Qumran. And in 1947, a shepherd boy found the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was hidden during this time because of this persecution. And the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes committed an unbelievable act. He actually entered the temple, entered the holy place, and he entered the Holy of Holies. And he brought in unclean animals, particularly several pigs, and he offered unclean animals as a sacrilegious act on the altar in the temple. He mixed the blood of pigs and water and he sprinkled it all over the temple. And he erected the status of Jupiter Olympius and ordered pagan worship on temple grounds. This enraged the Jewish people. It resulted in a Braveheart-style rebellion. A Hasmonean family organized a guerrilla-type army. A man named Judah Maccabee, and he became known as the Maccabean Revolt. Maccabee is Hebrew for hammer. He was a Gideon-style leader, type and stature. He led a rebellion against the Syrian forces, and their rebellion was victorious. And they recaptured the temple in Jerusalem. In 165 B.C., they cleansed the temple, they refurnished it, and they rededicated it exactly three years to the day when Epiphanes sacrificed the pig in the holiest of holies. On that day, the Maccabees ordained the annual feast of dedication known as the Festival of Dedication or the Festival of Hanukkah. It is still currently observed today by the Jewish people. An eight-day joyous festival marked by illumination of lights. Well, at the time of Christ, it was like July 4th, Cinco de Mayo, and all of that rolled into one. It was not a pilgrim feast, but it was a major event in the life of Israel. So people throughout the nation gathered in the temple to worship God. Well, three months later, our Lord is back in Jerusalem observing this feast. He's walking under Solomon's colonnade. It's a covered colonnade that ran along the eastern wall of the temple. Winter is rainy season for Israel. And so he's on this roofed-in enclosure. And the Jewish leaders, again, verse 24, they, they corner him. They gather around him. They encircle him. Interrupting, obviously, maybe his teaching ministry. And they say to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Our Lord gives them a twofold answer. His first answer is, I have told you already. I have told you already. They want a straightforward answer. And our Lord says, You know this already. I have told you. His answer is entirely justified. John 5.21 If anyone hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He equated himself with God. 
John 5, 39 through 40, if anyone, you search the scriptures, not knowing that the scriptures testify about me that he is the Messiah. And John 6, 35, our Lord said, I am the bread of life. John 7, 37 through 38, I am the living water. Anyone drinks of me, streams of living water will flow out of him, resulting in eternal life. John 8, 12, our Lord spoke again in the temple courts. And when the final light went out, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the whole temple area was covered in darkness. Our Lord cried out, I am the light of the world. If anyone follows me, he will not walk in darkness. They asked him, will you tell us clearly if you are the Christ? And our Lord said, I have told you. His second part of the answer is found in verse 25. Not only that, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. His words were accompanied by His works. He had evidence confirming His identity. In John 4, the royal official son was healed. In John chapter 5, the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda was healed. In John chapter 6, 9,000 to 11,000 men, women, and children were fed. John chapter 9, in plain sight, there was a man who was born blind all his life, and Christ cured him. It was clear by his works that he was Messiah, that he was God in flesh. In fact, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, a leading teacher, the teacher of Israel, a member of the Pharisees, a member of the Sanhedrin, comes to Christ at the cloak of darkness. And what are Nicodemus' words? He says, Teacher, we know you are from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with you. It was readily apparent. John 5.36, Christ said, I have testimony. They were saying, Lord, you only have one witness for you, John the Baptist. And Christ said, I have testimony weightier than John's testimony. And that's the testimony that God has given me. The work that I am doing testifies that I am God's Son. John 7.31, the crowds understood this. The uneducated, the fickle masses, they saw the works of Christ and they said, when the Christ comes, when the Christos, the Messiah, when the Anointed One comes, will He do more miracles than this man? No, the rhetorical question, no. His, his works reveal they are signs, Simeon as John says, they are signs pointing to Christ's deity, that Jesus is the promised one. But for these Jewish leaders, they were unconvinced. They were unwilling to believe. They were immovable in their unbelief. Nothing could convince them. All the miracles in the world added together would not convince these Pharisees. And it's confirmed in the next chapter, chapter 11. What happens in chapter 11 of John? Here is Lazarus. He's dead for four days. His flesh is rotting. Disciples say, are you sure you want to open him up? Because he's covered in grave clothes. And our Lord raises him from the dead. And what's the, the Jewish leaders, what's their response? They conspire to murder two people now, not one. Right? Their conspiracy was directed at Christ. Now, their conspiracy is directed at two people. We must kill Lazarus and Jesus. 
Because Lazarus' life testifies to the deity of Christ. Nothing would convince them. They were immovable in their unbelief. And John talks about this later. This is a sign of God's judgment of, of, of Israel. That though they see, they cannot perceive. Though they hear, they will not understand. Right? Their hearts are dulled. And it is God's working. It's God's judgment against Israel for their stiff necks, for their hardness towards God and His Word. Well, it is in this context that our Lord gives us the first heart-inflaming truth. The one truth that if we believe in this truth and our hearts are set on fire, we make impact onto eternity. This first truth is helpful because it helps us to understand how our Lord saw the world. It helps us to understand how our Lord interpreted the world, how He interpreted men's actions. He wasn't puzzled. You know, he wasn't like, wow, why don't you guys accept me? I don't understand this. What else can I do for you guys? Right? He wasn't confused about it because of his rejection. To him it was clear. Because he understood, verse 26 and 27, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. That's awesome. He had no problems with his rejection. It fit perfectly with his worldview, his paradigm. Because the truth that guided the thoughts of our Lord was, in this world, there are two categories of people. That's it. Two groups in the world. All men, women, and children fit in either of these two categories. You're either part of the fold of Christ, or you are not. Everything in life, all of one's life, is determined by this simple, tr- simple truth. Whether you belong to Christ or not. This is the determinative issue in one's life. One's worldview, one's behavior, perspectives, presuppositions, what you value and treasure in life, the grid with which you interpret your life in the world is determined by the simple fact. Are you a Christian or are you a non-Christian? If you're a non-Christian, you interpret everything accordingly. And if you're a Christian, as well. This is the essential identity of a person that colors everything. And we see how Christ, how He interacted with the world, and we see this truth come out again and again. For Him, ethnicity was not an issue. John 4, a Samaritan woman, they consider Samaritans enemies. He freely associated with her, talked with her. When the Samaritans came streaming towards Him, He said the harvest is plentiful, and He ministered to them. For a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite woman, came to Him, asking for her, healing for her son. He conceded and answered her prayers. Right. Ethnicity was not an issue. Social status was not an issue for him. That didn't, make, that didn't mean anything. Matthew was a tax collector. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Peter was a fisherman. Even lawyers, Christ. Right? That was a joke, by the way. Even, law, even lawyers. Right? Like Matthew. Nicodemus was a lawyer. Gender was not an issue for him. Men, women, 
even age, even children. Matthew 19, he said, let the children come to me. He didn't care about physical deformities, the outcasts of society, the untouchables, the blind, the deaf, the demon-possessed, the lepers. He loved them all. He cared for them all without distinction. Only category that was of importance to Christ was whether they belonged to Him or whether they, or whether they belonged to this world. Matthew thirteen twenty four and 30. Wheat and weeds. Wheat and weeds. First John two fifteen through seventeen. You either love the world, or you love Christ. If you love the world, love of the Father is not in Him. Ephesians five eight. You're either a child of darkness or a child of light. Matthew twelve thirty. Either you are for me or you are against me. Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He makes clear in Matthew 25 that one day, this distinction is hidden from us. It's not clear exactly who the children of God are and who aren't. But Christ says in the future, all nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the sheep and the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Here our Lord says two groups. Those who are my sheep, listen to my voice. Those who are not, they do not believe. That is the ultimate and basic reason for their unbelief. It is not because our Lord was not convincing enough. It is not because His evidence, His miracles were not great enough. It is not because there was any sin or defect in the character of Christ. They do not believe because they do not belong to Christ. Their essence, their identity comes before unbelief. They reject Christ because they have already rejected Christ. This is the first truth that I hope that will grip our hearts. Let me ask you, do you see the world in this way? Do you see the world in categories of social class? Do you see the world in terms of ethnicity? Do you see the world in terms of academic achievement, income, or gender, or age? Where they live, their zip code, the cars they drive, their looks. Is that how you classify people in your mind, in my mind? Not Christ. How are we to categorize people? We're to categorize people with two categories alone. Either you're a Christian or you're not. And, and Christ was no respecter of man, therefore we're no respecter of man. It doesn't matter who you are in the eyes of the world. If you're not a Christian, we have only one objective for you. We have only one desire for you. Only one prayer for you. Our heart's cry is one thing, for you to know Christ. For you to be part of the flock of Christ. For you to know Him, and to be saved by Him, and to have your sins forgiven. That is the bottom line issue. You know, as Cornerstone, we're not you know, targeting Asians. 
We're not targeting middle class or upper middle class urbanites. We're not targeting um, young people. We are targeting the lost. Every shape and form. All those other categories are of no issue. Absolutely zero. Why? Because that is how Christ saw the world. Secondly, the other group, the Christians. Christ saw them as one flock. He united them. We studied this two, two weeks ago. The good shepherd unites the sheep into one flock and he is the one shepherd. Where in the church of Christ, earthly categories are unimportant. Do we see the church in, in that way? Do we see the church as Christ sees the church? See, in the church, I appreciate this about Cornerstone. I hope this continues. We don't have, you know, once we come into fellowship, we don't have lawyers here. We don't have doctors here. We don't have school teachers or housewives. We have believers. We have Christians. All those earthly titles, the status we have in the world, is of no consequence to a believer. Why? Because it's of no consequence to Christ. I, mean, I love this about CBC. We, I think we strive to put, leave our titles at the door when we walk in. Right? No one has a chip on their shoulders expecting preferential treatment because of their status in the world. Right? We are to relate to one another as Christians first and foremost and Christians alone. To the degree you allow those earthly categories to influence your relationships in the church, to that degree you're hindering the work of Christ. To that degree you're straying away from Christ's heart. To that degree you're not making an impact for Christ. If you come to the church and you relate to people according to social status, income, education, or ethnicity, to that degree you're straying from the Word of God. If you come to church and you say, you know what, that guy... He's into sports and I'm not. You know, he watches Channel 9, I watch Channel 7, right? He likes to wear green, I like to wear yellow. And you focus on those differences. He has three kids, I have one, right? Therefore, our commonalities are limited. Or her, you know, she's, she's short, I'm tall, right? He likes donuts, I like bagels. I mean, go on and on and on. Things that we, we, we focus on, to, to, to focus on our, our Differences to that degree, you're limiting the, what Christ has done. Christ united the church. That's why Paul said, Let no man divide the church, stumble a brother over food. Who cares about food? It's trivial, it's shallow, it's immature thinking. Well, same thing if we allow such things to hinder our fellowship. Same thing with ethnicity. You know, there's a big thing about in Christianity today how a, a black pastor in Louisiana made an ad in the newspaper. He will pay $5 for every Caucasian that will worship at his church because he was a black church. Did you guys hear about this? About 30 people came up, you know, and about a third of them wanted the five bucks. Two-thirds didn't want it, but a third of them wanted it. And this is big push towards multi-ethnic church. I think, I think that's wrong where you target an ethnic group, or, or even ethnicity is an issue in the church. 
No. That is of no consequence. We're here to worship God. And if you are a member of God's flock, you're united with us, period. Right? You know, America is strong not because it's diverse. America is diverse because it is strong. Does that make sense? Right? The reason America is diverse is because everybody wants to come here. Why? Because there's freedom. Right? You could, you could live according to your own terms, practice freedom of religion. That's why all over the world people are coming to, the, to, to this country. That, the, the strength is the reason for diversity. That's what I believe. If you have a strong church, a healthy church, a God-honoring, God-word-preaching church, it'll be multi-ethnic. It'll be diverse. It's an overflow of the health of the church. But it must not be the goal. Why? Because in Christ's view, there's only two categories, his sheep and not his sheep. Let's go to the second truth and we'll close our time. still got eight, four, four more pages, so it's, it's the last point, but it's a lengthy point. Second truth is that our Lord is not just a good shepherd. He's not just a shepherd of the sheep, but he is the owner. You know, just verse 27, my sheep, my sheep. We belong to Him. He is our owner. He is our master. He is our king. Now, how can we be rightly called Christ's sheep? Three reasons. Number one, He chose us. He chose us. John fifteen sixteen. Christ said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. When, Lord? Right? Christ knew that all humanity would be dead in trespass to the sins of one man, Adam. Adam. He knew that we be children of, of, of wrath by nature, enemies of God. But out of this oh, mass of humanity, He chose some to be His child. He chose Psalm 916 to be recipients of His mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. According to the counsel of His own will alone, He was not influenced by anyone's righteousness, he was not a respecter of man. The only thing that informed his choice was the counsel of his goodwill. Ephesians 1.11, he chose. He chose Ephesians 1, 4-6, all for the praise of his glory, the praise of his grace, that he might be glorified and his grace might be glorified. Christians belong to Christ because Christ chose them. Secondly, he owns us because he purchased us with his life. He redeemed us out of that bondage. Psalm 49, 7-9 says, No man can redeem the life of another. No man. No man can give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is too costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever, not to decay. Psalm 49, 7-9. It says right there, No man can ransom someone else's life. It is too costly. It's too expensive. No one is able to pay that price to ransom someone from sin and allow that person to live forever with God. But Christ was not an ordinary man. He was God in flesh. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was holy. And He came for that specific purpose. Matthew 28, 20, 28. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And therefore, this is repeated throughout the Scriptures, the costliness of our salvation, 
It was a free gift to us. It was not free to God. It was not free to Christ. Because it cost Christ His life to ransom us from sin. And therefore, it's replete in the New Testament. The costliness of our salvation. Acts 20.28 Be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. The song that we will sing forever in heaven, Revelation 5.9, records the content of our song that we will sing. It says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. That's our song for eternity. You purchased men with your blood. Not meaning He bled, He gave like a pint to purchase us. He gave His life. To buy us, to redeem us. We need to understand this truth and be set on fire by this simple truth that He owns us because He purchased us. The costliness of our salvation. Remember David in 2 Samuel 23, 14-17? They were encamped around the Philistine army. Actually, the Philistines were encamped around David in the, near the city of Bethlehem. And his mighty men were surrounding David. And David, he just cried out, I thirst. And the mighty men crossed enemy lines to go to a spring and they brought back water for David. They risked their lives because their king was thirsty. And what did David do? He said, I can't drink this water. It's like I'm drinking your blood. You men risked your lives for this water. And he poured it out. This water is too costly. And it refused to drink. It was too precious for him. Because men's life, men risked their lives. Well, Christ did not risk his life. He did not put his life in before hazard or harm. He gave his life. He poured it out. He died for our salvation. So how much more must believers cherish our salvation? He laid it down. He gave His life. He died on the cross. He endured the curse of God that our sins might be forgiven. That is why we treasure Christ. That is why we treasure our salvation. The costliness of it. Spurgeon says, quote, now our blessed shepherd esteems his sheep. He treasures us. Why? Not because there's any inherent value in us. Because they cost him his blood. We cost him his blood. That's why he cherishes us. There is not one sheep of all his flock. But what he can see the mark of his blood on him. In the face of every saint, the Savior sees as in a glass the memorial of His bloody sweat in Gethsemane and His agonies at Golgotha. End quote. Throughout the Scriptures, Paul calls believers and says, this is the basis for our obedience. We are to obey Christ because He purchased us. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You are bought at a price. Consider the price. Therefore, obey God. Honor God with your body. 
our motivation for obedience is not legalism. It's not the pleasure of man. It's not our own moralism. The sole motivation for our obedience must be Christ's finished work on the cross. Specifically, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.23, the price of our salvation, the costliness of our salvation. Romans 12.1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you in view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Paul says, stop. Look at the mercy of God. The costliness of our salvation. In light of God's mercy, offer your sacrifices. That must be our sole motivation to follow Christ. Why do we obey? Why do we, and we can't call it sacrifice, but I guess that's the terminology that is used. Why do we quote-unquote sacrifice our time, energy, our effort, why do we suffer and endure? Why do we bear reproach for the cause of Christ? Not, because, not just because Christ risked His life, but He gave His life and He purchased it for me. And whenever I think of this, I, you know, I'm just a creature of habit and I just go to Private Ryan. I know I've used this illustration so many times, but to me, that's what stirs my heart all the time. When I look at the costings of salvation, I think of Private Ryan. These seven men, they go to, uh, to rescue this one private. And on their way, why are we risking our lives to save one guy? And they say, this guy better do something with his life. We're risking our next out here for him. He better do something with his life. And at the end, when the captain dies, he turns to Private Ryan and he says two words. His last words are, earn it. I died for you. I gave my life so that you will live. Earn it. In the last scene of the movie, he's an old man and the cemetery at Normandy, and he turns to his wife, and he says, have I been a good man? Have I wasted my life? Have I earned it? That's what Paul is saying. Philippians 1.27, live a life worthy of the gospel. Ephesians 3.1, Philippians 4.1, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. We can never be worthy. Never. But Paul says, pursue that, so that we might earn the cost of our salvation. That is why 1 Corinthians 10.31, our life is to be given over to Christ. We don't own it anymore. It's not my life, it's not my family, it's not my child, it's not my house, my car, my possessions, my time. It belongs to Christ. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Why? Because He owns us. How does He own us? He purchased us with His blood, with His life. And the final reason He owns us is because God the Father gave us to Him. God the Father gave us to Him. We are Christ's sheep because God gave it to Him. John 17.2 You granted Him authority over all people that He might give eternal life to all those you gave Him. Given Him. John 17, 9, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Who are they? The sheep, Christians. God gave the elect to Christ. John 17, 24, Father, I want those you have given me, you have given me, to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Why did God give the elect to Christ? Because God loved Christ. God loved His Son. Therefore, as a gift of love, He gave the elect to His Son. That's why we belong to Christ. That's why we belong to Christ. 
Again, we don't have to know a lot of truths to glorify Christ. We don't have to go to seminary or get a bunch of degrees to honor God. We just need to know a simple, basic truth, glorious, majestic truth, and believe them, and live by them, and be set on fire by them. First two truths, very simple. Only two categories of people exist in the world. Therefore, we evangelize the lost, we edify the saints. And second, we belong to Christ. He owns us. We are His. Let's pray. Father, we do um, thank You that You have kept these truths from the wise and gave it to us, the foolish. Um, Lord, we praise you for your work of rescuing us, of saving us, and giving giving your life for the glory of God that we might be saved. We are unworthy beneficiaries of this great gift. Lord, um, Help our hearts be set on fire by these truths. Let us not be led astray by um, the wrong mindset of being distracted by thousand and one trivialities of life. May we be consumed by few truths. And may our lives be taken upside down by these truths. And by our lives, may we impact this world. And may and be a testimony for you and for your word. We thank you, Lord, for our time in the word. Uh, May the truths of God influence our minds to glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.